This morning we are back in the book of Genesis. This morning we're going to be in two chapters in the book of Genesis. Genesis 43 and 44. And we're going to be breaking up the reading and really considering just two main points for this morning. That We'll see several things in the text, really just two main points. First, we'll see that Jacob was resigned to the will of God. Jacob was resigned to the will of God. And then secondly, we will see that Judah was the surety for his brother. Jacob was resigned to the will of God, and Judah was the surety for his brother. And so first we'll look at at chapter 43. Uh, We'll read the first 15 verses there. Genesis 43, uh, beginning in verse 1. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, Now the famine was severe in the land, so it came about when they had finished eating the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. Judah spoke to him, however, saying, The man solemnly warned us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you do not send him, We will not go down. For the man said to us, You will not see my face unless your brother is with you. Then Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly? By telling the man whether you still had another brother. But they said, The man questioned particularly about us and our relatives, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his questions. Could we possibly know that he would say, bring your brother down? Judah said to his father Israel, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. We as well as you and our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him if I do not bring him back to you. And set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. For if we had not delayed, surely by now we could have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags and carry down to the man as a present. A little balm and a little honey aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and arise and return to the man. And may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man so that he will release to you your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, If I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present. They took double the money in their hand and Benjamin. Then they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Now as we look to the text this morning, we see this this drama continuing between Joseph and his brothers and their father Jacob. Chapter 42, of course, had ended with Jacob's refusal outright refusal to allow Benjamin to go down to Egypt, but 
as chapter 43 begins, we see that the famine was severe in the land. In other words, things are becoming more desperate. And as you know, desperate times sometimes call for desperate measures. Jacob wants them to go back to buy more food, but Judah reminds his father of an important piece of the puzzle that this would be a futile effort if Benjamin did not go with them. The brothers explain how they were closely questioned by the man. You notice they never use the name, they just call him the man in Egypt. And this man was asking them all kinds of questions, particular questions about their family. How could they know that as a result of those questions, he would demand that their younger brother would need to come down in order for them to buy grain? And so Judah speaks to their father in verses 8 through 10. Judah wants clearly to preserve the lives of the family by taking Benjamin down to get grain. And he himself pledges to keep Benjamin safe. Notice his words there in verse 9. He says, I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. And this idea of a surety is the idea of a guarantor or someone who makes a pledge in guarantee of something for someone else. This is the word that's used in places like Proverbs 11.15, where we're told, he who is a guarantor for a stranger will surely suffer for it. But he who hates being a guarantor is secure. Likewise, Proverbs 17.18, a man lacking in sense pledges and becomes a guarantor in the presence of his neighbor. And the cases in view there in, in Proverbs have to do with, with the guaranteeing of debts. Proverbs is warning you that it is a dangerous thing to become a guarantor for someone else's debt because if they can't pay their debt or if they simply won't pay their debt, then you are the one who's going to get stuck with the bill if you are the guarantor. Now, if oral family history is worth anything, my grandmother once told me that her father had signed once for his own brother to get a loan. And she proceeded to tell me that her uncle wasn't quite the worker that her father was, and I think the implication was that her father got stuck with the bill. That's actually the very thing that Proverbs is warning about. Don't strike hands in pledge for somebody else, or you may get saddled with the bill. When you become the surety or the guarantor for someone else, you're putting yourself in their place in case something goes wrong. And that's what Judah was doing here when he put himself up as the surety for Benjamin. He's guaranteeing Benjamin's personal safety, taking personal responsibility upon himself in case anything goes awry. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with him in doing this. I don't think there's even anything unwise about it. But when push came to shove and Benjamin was in danger, it was Judah's responsibility to stand up for his brother. And this becomes important, as we'll see in chapter 44. And Lord willing, we'll come back to this issue of, of Judah being the surety later on. But we want to lay the foundation for that here, where Judah first makes this pledge of being the surety for his brother. And let's notice a, a couple other things here in these first 15 verses. First, let's see the ascendancy of Judah to a position of leadership among the brothers. Judah here becomes the main representative of his brothers before their father, Jacob. 
Judah is the main speaker here in this, this dialogue here in these first 15 verses of chapter 43. When Jacob says, go back to Egypt to get more grain, it's Judah who speaks up and says, we can't unless we take Benjamin with us. And it is Judah who makes this plea that finally persuades their father in verses 8 through 10. Now, the other brothers apparently do some speaking there in verse 7, but Judah was the one who was, who was taking the lead. And the second thing uh, to notice here is the response of Jacob. After Judah makes this appeal, offers to become the surety for Benjamin, Jacob recognizes the, the desperate situation in which they find themselves, and he also recognizes, again, the fact that sometimes desperate times call for desperate measures, and he agrees that Benjamin should go down to Egypt. And so he lays out the plan. They're going to take gifts, the best products of the land, as a gift for this man who is the Lord of Egypt. They should take double the money with them. They should take money to buy grain this time. They should also take the money that was given in their sacks the last time so as to make up for the fact that they got the money back in case there was a mistake somewhere along the line. And significantly, he says in verse 13, take your brother also. That is, take Benjamin. Up to this moment, he had adamantly refused to allow Benjamin to go. But under the circumstances, he feels that he has little choice. Benjamin gets to go. Benjamin needs to go because the welfare of the family is dependent on this. And notice also verse 14, where Jacob puts forward a prayer or a blessing for this undertaking. He says, May God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man so that he will release to you your other brother and Benjamin. Jacob rightly recognizes here that the hearts of all men are in the hands of God. He knows that it is within the power of God to turn this man's heart to look favorably on his sons and to show compassion to them so that Simeon and Benjamin may be well and may be returned unharmed. And we see in this how Jacob both makes use of means and also depends upon the Lord for the successful outcome of this event. He makes use of means in the sending of gifts, right? He says, let's, let's take him some of the best products of the land. Let's take double the money and go. And Proverbs 18.16 tells us that a man's gift makes room for him and will bring him before great men. Now, I think a lot of times when we think about gifts of this nature in our context, we're thinking, we're thinking of bribes, kind of greasing the hands of a politician so as to get your own way. I don't think, I don't think that was the case so much here in, in this context or even in what uh, Proverbs 18 was talking about. This seems to be the case that in the ancient world, this kind of a thing was a way of, of introducing you before a great man, cultivating goodwill and appeasing anger. And so Jacob was utilizing means here, was trying to put his best foot forward in this venture of sending his sons back to Egypt. But he's not simply trying to scheme and organize. He also prays. He says, may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man. And for us, we must likewise utilize both as well. On the one hand, Jesus commanded his disciples to be shrewd as serpents, and innocent as doves, right? They're supposed to, to be wise and innocent as they are out 
in the world, spreading the gospel. And at the same time, Scripture commands us that we are to pray without ceasing, that we are to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so the people of God both pray and also take appropriate action under the circumstances. And we also see something very important here in, uh, in verse 14 as well in the response of Jacob to this situation. Different interpreters place different constructions upon what Jacob actually means in those final words of verse 14, but I'm inclined to see the end of verse 14 as Jacob resigning himself to the will of God. In other words, Jacob has done the best that he can under the difficult circumstances of the case, and ultimately he's going to trust God for the outcome. And so he says, as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Again, he's, he's doing the best that he can, all things considered. It's true, there was a risk involved in sending Benjamin down to Egypt, but under the case here, he would be running an even greater risk were he to keep Benjamin at home. If he kept Benjamin and all the boys at home, Simeon would still be languishing in prison. They wouldn't have the grain to eat in the famine. And so backed into a corner as he was, Jacob does the best he knows. He prays and he trusts the Lord for the outcome. And there are biblical examples of others who have done much the same. And so, for instance, think, think with me of, of Esther. Esther's uncle Mordecai saw her with her access to the king of Persia as the best way of preserving the Jews from the violence which Haman had plotted and planned against them. And if you remember the, uh, the dialogue that takes place as Mordecai sends word to the palace through Esther's servants to, to get to her, and Esther sends word back to Mordecai, Esther's not, not too thrilled at all with this plan because she knew that it was a risky thing to go to see the king because unless the king holds out his scepter to whoever comes in, they could be killed for attempting to see the king. But Mordecai told her, this is Esther 4.14, he said, If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. And when Esther heard that, she sent word back to Mordecai and said, Go and assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to law. And if I perish, I perish. She and her maids were going to seek the favor of God by fasting, presumably praying as well. She asked Mordecai and the Jews of Susa to do the, to do the same thing. And then she was going in to the king. God's will be done. If I perish, I perish. And thus we see in the life of Jacob and in the life of Esther this, this resignation to the will of God, a willingness to do what needed to be done, though they were uncertain of the outcome of their actions and there were risks involved. They were willing to do what they had to do 
and to trust the Lord with the ultimate outcome of the event. And we would do well to learn uh, from Jacob and from Esther in this regard and to resign ourselves to the Lord's will, trusting that indeed he is the one who reigns in heaven above. We need to trust that he is the one who says, as we find in Isaiah 46.10, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. We trust that he's the one who works all things after the counsel of his own will, Ephesians 1.11. And this is, not, this is not fatalism, because fatalism says, que sera, sera, what will be, will be, as if it's simply blind fate that is in control of the world. But it's not an impersonal fate who is in control of the world, it's the God of the Bible who is in control of the world, the God who made heaven and earth, the God who made us, the God who loves us, who is in control of the world. And therefore, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And as Westminster Shorter Catechism explained the Lord's Prayer, it says, We pray that God, by his grace, would make us able and willing to know, obey, and submit to his will in all things as the angels do in heaven. And so we're not only asking that we ourselves would do God's will, that we would be obedient to him, that he would give us grace to, to walk in accordance with his commandments, but we are also asking that we would have grace to submit to his will of decree as he brings about his purposes on earth. Now, our trouble is that we don't always respond too well to the will of God. There was one expositor of the Lord's Prayer who says, we do not approve of this will of God, but rather we complain about it through impatience and murmuring and resistance. Isn't that what happens? Is that events happen to us in our lives, we see things happen and we complain, we resist, we murmur against God. We become impatient and dissatisfied and unsubmissive toward the will of God. But rather we must... Learn from, from Jacob and from, from Esther. And if you were with us this morning, we saw it in King David in Second Samuel 15, this resignation and submission to the will of God. We must learn to trust him and to love him, to trust his ways, to acknowledge that his ways are good. And then we say with Jacob, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. We say with Esther, if I perish, I perish. We say with Job, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Job 13, 15. As hard as it is, this is what true faith looks like when we're faced with uncertainty and hardship. And so may God give us all such faith to trust in him that we may say it and mean it when we say in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Now, let's uh, proceed and we'll, we'll keep reading here. And uh, we'll, we'll be eventually coming to our, to our second point, which is uh, Judah being the surety. But we'll see in the meantime, Joseph testing his brothers here. As we, we pick up reading in uh, chapter 43, verse 16, we'll read down through the end of chapter 43. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his house steward, bring the men into the house and slay the animal and make ready. For the men are to dine with me at noon. So the man did as Joseph said and brought them into Joseph's house. 
Now the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said, it is because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time that we are being brought in that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for slaves with our donkeys. So they came near to Joseph's house steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. And it came about when we came to the lodging place that we opened our sacks and behold, each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full. So we have brought it back in our hand. We have also brought down other money in our hand to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. He said, be at ease. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Then the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water and washed their feet and gave their donkeys fodder. So they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they had heard that they were to eat a meal there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present which, there, which was in their hand and bowed down to the ground before him. Then he asked about their welfare and said, Is your old father well of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. They bowed down in homage. As he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred over his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face. And came out and controlled himself and said, serve the meal. So they served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. Now they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And all the men looked at one another in astonishment. He took the portions to them from his own table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. So they feasted and drank freely with him. And so we see now what's going on once the the brothers arrive back in Egypt and are standing before Joseph. In In a way, the brothers had already passed their first test. Joseph wanted to see Benjamin. They brought Benjamin down. They demonstrated that Benjamin was still alive. In other words, these ten brothers had not done to Benjamin what they had done to Joseph, either killing him or selling him into slavery. And so Joseph is pleased to see Benjamin, but he still wants to to test them. He wants to see what their true attitude is toward their younger brother, their younger brother who is their father's favorite. And so he wants to see how it would stand various strains or various tests. And so Joseph here engineers circumstances by which two strains might be tested. One, the strain of prosperity, 
And secondly, the strain of adversity. And we'll see that as we, as we go through. And so Joseph has the brothers come to his house uh, to dine. And we can tell that given all that they'd been through with this man, the brothers are, are kind of nervous about this. They're worried that they'll be captured and become slaves and so forth. And so they, they speak to Joseph's steward about the money in verses 20 and following. And the house steward replies. Joseph's steward is clear that there's no problem on that account. He knew that they had paid for the grain that they had received. There's no problem. And then Simeon is brought out to them, brought out from prison so far It appears that all of their fears about coming back to Egypt had been misapprehensions. Things are are going well, as far as they can tell. And in what follows, we see Joseph coming out to greet them, inquires about their father, he greets Benjamin, and then they have the meal. Joseph eats by himself due to his high standing. The Hebrews and the Egyptians uh, separate because of the Egyptian arrogance in this regard, and regarding uh, the eating with, with other people, particularly the Hebrews, as being loathsome to them. But then uh, there are some oddities that are going on at this meal that are brought out in verses 33 and 34. Uh, for one, their places at the meal are arranged in birth order, it seems. And uh, it's one thing to, to look at two people who are greatly uh, discrepant in their, in their ages and be able to pick the younger and the older, but it, it seems here that uh, almost that the places are, are laid out down the line. Eleven brothers, oldest to the youngest. And this takes some doing. It's no wonder that uh, verse 33 says that the men looked at one another in astonishment. And then the second oddity is the favoritism that is shown here to Benjamin. Benjamin receives five times as much at the meal as any of the other brothers did. And Joseph seems to be doing this to, to test his brothers by observing how they would respond to Benjamin when Benjamin is shown favoritism. What are they going to do? This is the, the strain of prosperity, we might say. He shows Benjamin favor now. How are the brothers going to react? Are they going to act toward Benjamin as they had acted toward Joseph when their father had shown Joseph favoritism 20-plus years earlier? Are they going to react in anger and jealousy, or are they going to react in a different way? Well, the text tells us at the end of verse 34 that they feasted and drank freely with him. seems that they they celebrated with Benjamin. They didn't cause a ruckus and a scene. They didn't respond with jealousy, with anger or rage, and so they, they seem to have passed this test here of Benjamin's prosperity. Joseph shows favoritism to Benjamin, and they all get along great. So far, so good. And then comes another test which Joseph engineers, and we see that in chapter 44. So let's, let's look ahead uh, to chapter 44, beginning in verse 1. Then he commanded his house steward, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph had told him. As soon as it was light, the men were sent away, they with their donkeys. They had just gone out of the city and were not far off when Joseph said to his house steward, Up, follow the men, and when you have overtaken them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks, and which, you, which indeed he uses for divination? 
You have done wrong in doing this. So he overtook them and spoke these words to them. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak with words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks we have brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we also will be my Lord's slaves. So he said, Now let it be according also to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then they hurried. Each man lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. He searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What is this deed that you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed practice divination? So Judah said, What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? And how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. And behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it for me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up to your father in peace. Then Judah approached him and said, O my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears. And do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? We said to my Lord, We have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead So he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. But he said to my Lord, The lad, but we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his brother would die. You said to your servants, however, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. Thus it came about when we went up to your servant, my father. We told him the words of my Lord. Our father said, go back, buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down if our youngest brother is not with us. Uh, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn in pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair Of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up 
with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? For fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father. Now, here in chapter 44, we see how Joseph switches his tactics in testing his brothers, right? He goes from making Benjamin prosperous now to making Benjamin vulnerable in order to see how his brothers respond to him when Benjamin's skin is on the line, so to speak. And most of you are well familiar with how this plan took shape. Joseph sends out the brothers with sacks full of grain, and again, he returns the money. This time, however, there's a twist. There's a silver cup placed in Benjamin's sack. And so this plant is done so as to frame Benjamin for theft. And as soon as they were gone, Joseph commands his steward to go out and stop them on account of this purported theft. And that's what happens. He catches up with the 11, and there are the protests, right? The brothers protest. They said, we, we brought our money back to you, this money that we found in our sacks. How can, how can we now be thieves? We, we're not that kind of men. And the height of the protest there is in verse 9, where they say, with whomever of your servants it is found, let him die, and we will also be my Lord's servants. Now, Joseph's steward uh, agrees with them, at least insofar as he agrees there ought to be a penalty. He does, however, disagree on what the penalty actually ought to be. As far as he's concerned, he only is interested in the one who actually stole the cup. The others can go free. It's not your fault, but whoever has the cup, he'll become the slave. And so they drop their sacks, and the steward works through the sacks, starting with Reuben, down to Benjamin, all the while knowing where he was going to find that silver cup. And now, there are some things about this incident which harken back to an earlier incident in the book of Genesis. Genesis 31, when Laban was in pursuit of Jacob and his family when they were fleeing from uh, Paddan Aram to to Canaan, and uh, how Laban complained of his stolen idols, right? You remember there were some stolen idols among uh, among the, the family of Jacob. And Jacob, like the brothers here, Jacob was willing to give the sentence of death on whoever uh, had stolen the idols. Laban searched through the tents, getting to to Rachel's tent last, she being the one who actually had stolen the gods, though she concealed uh, concealed them from her father while he was searching. So there are some, some similarities here, but there are two big differences. One, Benjamin was not guilty of theft. Rachel actually was. And number two, the missing item was found in Benjamin's possession. Benjamin's possession. His mother, Rachel, had been able to conceal the idols which she had stolen from her father. So some similarities, but two big differences. And so they go, go back to town, back to Joseph's house, to plead their case before him. And as this uh, plays out, we, uh, we see again, as we did last week, some questionable behavior uh, on the part of Joseph, this time in regard to, to divination. The practice of divination is, is clearly off-limits for Uh, the people of God, and yet Joseph here claims to have been engaged in it. Now, there there are two possibilities. One, Joseph actually was practicing divination, and he shouldn't have been. Or number two, he was not actually practicing divination, but lying by saying that he was. Um, I think either way, we have a bit of a problem. Again, Joseph was a great man, a godly man, but not a sinless man. He was a sinner, and I think we can see some of that coming out here one way or the other. But 
that aside, what we need to see here, the big point is Joseph has now sprung the trap on his brothers. He has the brothers right where he wants them. He wanted to see how they responded when Benjamin was prospering, and now he wants to see how they respond when Benjamin is vulnerable. And again, we see Judah taking the lead among the brothers. He's the one who speaks to Joseph in uh, verse 16, and he's the one who speaks to Joseph from verse 18 all the way down to the end of the chapter. This is, this is Judah taking the lead among his brothers. And Judah knows that the evidence against Benjamin is too much, simply too much to be able to refute. And so he offers in verse 16 for them all to become slaves. But Joseph says, no, 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 we're not going to do this. Far be it from me. I only want the man in whose possession the cup was found to be my slave. But as for the rest of you guys... Go up. Peace to you. Peace to your father. 22 years ago, if his father's favorite son had been in that position, Judah would have been the kind of man to tip his hat at that moment and say, all right, thank you for being so kind. We're on our way. And as he walked out, he would have been winking and giving the thumbs up to his brothers as they were out the door. If their mentality had been the same as it formerly had been, it would have been all too easy for them to just go home, get back to Jacob and say, well, sorry, Dad. Benjamin got caught with a silver cup in his sack. There's no denying that. He's a slave now. What could we do? What could we do? But there was a change, and we see that change there in Judah's long speech in verses 18 through through 34, as he relates the family background, the close relationship between Benjamin and Jacob, Jacob's reluctance to allow Benjamin to go to Egypt, and how the sorrow of losing Benjamin would be enough to kill Jacob. But the height of Judah's appeal comes there in verses 32 and following, where he tells Joseph that he became the surety for Benjamin to their father, offering to bear the blame before Jacob forever if he failed to bring Benjamin back home. And in keeping with that pledge to be the surety for his brother, he offers then to take his place as a slave, as he says there in verse 33. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. This is exactly what a surety was supposed to do. He's supposed to stand up, He's supposed to stand in the gap when a threat comes to the one for whom he is the guarantor. And Judah fulfilled his role quite admirably here. He pledges to his father, I will do it. And when push comes to shove, the trap was sprung, he was willing to do it. I have no doubt that he meant it when he said to Joseph, Joseph is second in command of Egypt. If he didn't mean it, if he's wanting any way to backpedal, you don't say to this man, I'll be the slave, let him go free. Judah meant it when he said it. He was willing to become a slave so that his brother might go free. And by his conduct here, Judah foreshadows the conduct of his greatest descendant, our Lord Jesus Christ, who was himself of the tribe of Judah. John Gill commented on Judah's conduct here by saying, In this, Judah was a type of Christ, who became the surety of God's Benjamins, his children who are beloved by him and as dear to him as his right hand, and put himself in their legal place instead and became sin and a curse for them that they might go free as Judah 
desired that his brother Benjamin might. That is the truth of the gospel right there. That Christ became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That Christ bore our sins in his own body on the cross that we might be forgiven for all of the evil that we have done. In that Christ became a curse for us as we find in Galatians 3 so as to redeem us from the curse of the law which was the just sentence upon us. And as our brother Stan read for us from Hebrews 7 this morning, we find in Hebrews 7.22 that Christ became the guarantee of a better covenant or the guarantor, the surety of a better covenant. Christ went to the cross as our surety, as our substitute, so that we who are guilty might be free, so that we might be ransomed, might be redeemed, might be reconciled to God forevermore. This is the good news of the gospel, that Christ is the surety for us, that Christ was the one who was not merely willing to stand in the gap, but he actually did it. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, it is my hope and prayer that this example of Judah would point you to Christ and would serve as an example that points to what Christ has done so that you too might turn from your sins and believe in Christ. And again, Judah was willing here to be a slave. He didn't actually have to be the slave. But Christ was not only willing to go to the cross and to suffer for our sins, he actually did it. He fulfilled it. He was ready and willing to bear the wrath of God for the sins of his people, and he actually did do it. The cup did not pass from him. He did die for the sins of his people so that we might be forgiven, redeemed, and reconciled to God. And if you have more questions about what this means, about how you too can receive the forgiveness of sins and be reconciled to God, you can talk to me after the service. You can talk to another Christian here. We would love to tell you more about how you too can come to know God through faith in Jesus Christ and be forgiven of your sins. And if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, then let this example of Judah Here be an encouragement and a joy to your heart as it points forward to what Christ has done for you as you remember the truth of the gospel. This should cause us to praise Christ and it should give us motivation to to live for him and to serve him as a result of God's mercies that we would offer ourselves as living sacrifices before him, that we would worship God from day to day Not only when we come to church and when we pray and when we read the Bible, but in all that we do, that all of our obedience would be a living sacrifice to God in view of his great mercies, in view of what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks for how it points us to Christ and not only Christ's willingness to to die for us, but to tell us the truth of what he did, that he actually became sin for us, became a curse for us, so that we who were sinful and we who deserve to be cursed might be free, reconciled and redeemed to you on account of what he has done for us. And so, Father, we give you praise for Christ, give you praise for the gospel, and we, we thank you for uh, your word and how you recount to us in it all that you have done in uh, the lives of your people in the past and how these 
great things point us forward to Christ. We pray uh, that we would see more and more how all of the scripture points to Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.